Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. So this must happen to you, but I get asked about integrative medicine for animals all the time. And I always have to say it's not my training. Right. And it's not the training of most veterinarians, I'm afraid. But we have one today who is trained. I'm so excited to be able to learn from him. So let's get Dr. Randy Aronson on. Okay. Dr. Randy Aronson is an integrative veterinarian. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1980 and practices at PAWS Veterinary Center in Tucson. In 2011, PAWS won the American Animal Hospital Practice of the Year Award. Dr. Aronson is trained in veterinary acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine, and nutrition. He is certified by the Canine Rehabilitation Institute to perform physical therapy on cats and dogs, and he uses food, ozone, pulsed electromagnetic therapy, shockwave, laser, and underwater treadmill to help attain health and wellness for his patients. Welcome, Randy. Nice to be here, Victoria. So it seems that we probably should start with the obvious. What is integrative veterinary medicine? Great question. So integrative veterinary medicine is the combination of the best of Western medicine or allopathic medicine, and then utilizing complementary therapeutics and protocols to bring in what I call the attainment of health and wellness. I think the demand for integrative veterinary medicine is huge, but I think the supply of people trained to do it is not so great. It's exactly right, Andy. We, you know, we're in such a paucity right now of veterinarians in general, and the veterinary schools don't even have any coursework whatsoever. In fact, I've had to go to uh, Corvallis or to Washington State, even the University of Arizona, and talk to their integrative club. Uh, but that's as far as it goes. Well, as you know, we have a new College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Arizona, and our center is hoping to partner with it and involve you as well in developing an integrative veterinary medicine program. It's very exciting because we've been looking to really spread the word. And as you said, there, there's so much interest and in, in the, the public itself is, is so clamoring for some of these protocols. Uh, it's It would be great to have educated veterinarians to lead the way. So what are the most common reasons that people seek you out to care for their animals? So I see a tremendous number of second and third opinions on cases mm -hmm. where uh, Western or allopathic medicine has been utilized. And it, we all know that many times that will put out a fire, maybe create some more problems but never attaining wellness and, and longevity. And so most commonly I see cases for severe skin disease, severe GI disease, for cancer, but also people who want to get started on the right path to start their young dogs and cats on protocols that basically will help them live as great of a lifespan as possible. So you mentioned skin conditions. Um, I'm going to uh, bring up my daughter's dog, wonderful sure. dog, couldn't stop scratching. And uh, it turned out that he was allergic to chicken. And then uh, it turned out that even though my daughter had gotten rid of any pet food with chicken, 
Um, the people at her reception desk kept giving him treats that were chicken-based. So it took right. a while to really deal with it. Right. That's a great, uh, that's a great example. Uh, that's a case that I would normally see. And we would recommend a food sensitivity test. Dr. Mm-hmm. Jean Dodds is world-renowned and does this testing. And it's so much better than some of the food allergy blood testing that we can do. But we also combine that with something called animal biome, where mm-hmm. we're really getting to the foundation of these dogs trying to stop leaky gut syndrome mm-hmm. and some of this allergic dermatitis. And it's usually not just chicken. I mean, we, ne- mm-hmm. we end up finding that there are sensitivities to alfalfa in some of these foods mm-hmm. or a lot of other products. A lot of my friends uh, are confused about dog food, especially, Mm. you know, there's so many different diets recommended from all raw food, uh, some of these very expensive uh, prepared meals, some people cook for their dogs. You do. uh, No, no, I I let them taste everything I cook. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's a big concern. Many people don't know how to interpret the ingredients in dog foods. Right. And, and this is a huge problem, Andy. And, and, you know, we created this industry of multi-billion dollar dry pet foods that are creating tremendous amount of problems in our animals. Just to allude, mo- most, the majority of our pets live to about two thirds of their true lifespan. Hmm. And the cancer rates are skyrocketing. Golden yeah. retrievers we've seen alone are living 50% of their normal life expectancy. Huh. So when you talk about food, there's a food pyramid and obviously fresh whole food is, is the best. And then it comes down to things like raw food or freeze dried raw food. And even when people are selecting dry foods, we recommend complex carb dry foods. You know, dog has a 0%, well, cats also 0% requirement for carbs. Mm-hmm. And yet our dry foods, even our best dry foods are 40 to 50% carbohydrate. So I recommend there's a number of places where people can look at set diets. The problem, as you alluded to, Andy, is that some of these prepared whole food diets are crazy expensive. And mm-hmm. if you have a couple of Rhodesian Ridgebacks running around <laughs> and you're trying to feed them some of these yeah. foods, it's easy to bankrupt the bank on that, just doing that alone. Mm-hmm. So how did we get to this place where there's so much carbohydrate in our pet food? We got to it because in the, I would say in the 70s, uh, 80s, we created a one-stop, let's just feed them dry food, put it in a bowl, be Uh able to go out the door. And, you know, at that time, it seemed like a a logical idea. Our ranch dogs and our farm dogs ate what Uh we ate. Uh, There was no dry kibble. But we now have created this multi-billion dollar industry and with it, huge problems on our animals. by doing that just because of the convenience really more than anything else. So when I advise a client, uh, like Andy's asking, I give them a lot of alternatives to how they can, even if they're using, let's say one of the better complex carb, how do we get more protein and veggies into these diets to help these animals? Because that's really the ticket. Mm -hmm. You know, some years ago, uh, Andy sent me this really incredible video it was of a woman named Anna Breitenbach, who's an animal whisperer. And she was working with this large leopard. His name was Diablo, and uh, who was unhappy where he was living. And she could somehow um, understand what he was unhappy about and help correct the situation. 
What do you think about this idea of an animal whisperer? And can the average person learn it? Absolutely. Um, I'll, let, let me tell you a quick short story. Oh, good. I had a national <laughs> radio show for many years. And there's a, um, a woman in, in Tucson who basically uh, does a lot of animal communication. And I had her on my show talking about certain things. Somebody called and asked, uh, my dog is limping on its right front leg. Uh, the veterinarian has taken a number of x-rays of its elbow and shoulder where she thinks the pain is. And then um, she stopped him and said, um, have him x-ray the, the, the right wrist and carpus. The guy called back the next week and said there was a lytic or cancerous lesion in the right carpus, and she nailed it. Um, oh, I've wow. had the same experience with one of my own dogs with her. So it, it's definitely something that can be done. It's definitely something that people can learn. Um, and um, her site is Journey to Healing, and it's it's really a fabulous thing to do. I personally have never taken any of her coursework, <laughs> but she tells me that I have that ability. Of course- <laughs> I like to trust my Western trained mind, and <laughs> I forget many times when I walk in a room that I that I do have that ability. Uh, so I I do lean on the the things that I've also been taught. Yeah, Randy, I read a disturbing article just yesterday that the anti-vaxxers are no longer vaccinating their pets. Right, uh, and the real concern is about rabies, of course. But of I course. wonder, you know, how many are, vaccinations are necessary? Are any not necessary? Great question. And one of the things we we do at Pause is we really limit the amount of vaccinations. The way we do that, Andy, is we do titers. Mm -hmm. We Kansas State University is fabulous for checking distemper, hepatitis, and parvovirus, and also rabies titers. So uh, we. Most of my pet owners, after a puppy series or a kitten series, will will check titers starting at a year of age. So we know that they're protected, but we're not over vaccinating. This is a huge problem. You know, there isn't a, a a person who owns a pet that goes to a veterinarian who yearly doesn't get bombarded with you need right. to repeat this this vaccine or that vaccine, and really it's causing huge problems. So we do know how to know. We we can look. Um, the big problem, like here in Arizona, for example, is the, the county won't accept rabies titer. You know, mm -hmm. if you went to England or, or Hawaii, which is rabies free, you couldn't get in with a vaccine. You have to have a titer. You, you have to be able to show them that that dog is mm -hmm. protected. So you're absolutely right. As long as we check titers, I feel very comfortable in not administering vaccines. And one more vaccine question. Is there sure. a vaccine now for valley fever? It's coming. That's what I. That's uh, they, what I've heard for a long time. <laughs> They've been working on this. That you know, the Center for Valley Fever Studies. I, I believe it's connected to the university. Has been yes. working on this with a company, and we keep on hearing that it's coming. Uh, we haven't seen it, and I keep on pursuing them. We just don't have it at this point. Okay. So another question that I get asked. By the way, as an integrative physician, I get asked. Quite frequently, I'm sure you do too, Andy, about yeah. care of animals. And I always have to say, I'm not trained. I don't know. But the thing that has come up lately is people keep asking me, is there evidence for the use of uh, CBD or maybe cannabis for pain or anxiety in dogs? 
Great question, Victoria. So I, just to let you know, I get asked the reverse question. Can I do this in myself? Because everything you're talking about is things that I would like to do for myself. And the answer is usually yes, but I don't tell them that because I don't want to cross that line like you don't want to cross the line in veterinary medicine. Yes. Um, the answer on the CBD is absolutely. Uh, the problem is, is that everybody and, and their mother is making CBD products. And we're seeing large amounts of things like glyphosate and other toxins in some of these products. The, the recommendation that I make is there's a, a wonderful surgeon in uh, at Western Reserve uh, University in Phoenix, Dr. Fossum, who makes a fabulous CBD product. It's, it's you know, she has it quality checked. It's certified, and it's the one that I recommend the most. Doctor, it's F O S S O M, and it's a fabulous CBD product. And we use it often for anxiety. We've used it for pain. Uh, there are a lot of different applications, but it definitely does help. There's no question. I think you know one of my female Ridgeback has an anxiety disorder, which has been getting worse. It's set off by noises, uh, especially thunder. So it's really bad in the in the monsoon season here. Sure, I've tried everything, and one suggestion <laughs> I had recently was ketamine. Do you have right. any experience with that? I think it can be given, uh, you know, intranasally or. I have not used that. Um, I know that people have used it and and used it to some benefit. Um, just because of, you know, basically our DEA regulations and whatnot, it's a little bit tough to uh -huh. both stock and distribute. Um, but I will tell you one thing, you know, I know that you, you both know, probably know this, but the university is doing a study in humans on the gut brain connection. Yeah. We have seen some of these anxiety pets when we will establish what their biome is through that animal biome company uh -huh. and correct it. We're seeing great reductions of some of that uh -huh. anxiety uh -huh. happening. So huh. I do approach it through the back door um, if I can. It doesn't always work, but it's certainly something. But I don't have any experience with ketamine per se, Andy. Okay. So another question I get asked about are the flea collars, uh, which people, of course, don't want fleas in their home, but they also don't want the toxic chemicals around their kids. Right. Um, what do you recommend? Well, you know, one of my things in my webinar to the public is really to try to eliminate as many toxins as possible. Mm -hmm. And these topical products are really a concern for me mm -hmm. because obviously not only is the dog or cat exposed, mm -hmm. but you're exposed and, right. you know, and we absorb these things. Mm -hmm. um, I do recommend, I, Tucson in general doesn't have a huge flea problem. Mm -hmm. We do have some tick problems, especially if people will go up in the mountains, go to mm -hmm. Flagstaff or Prescott or that type of thing. Um, in that situation, many times I am utilizing an oral product that I think is fairly safe. Um, we do do a lot of recommendation for heartworm preventative because we have heartworm big time in Tucson. People don't realize we've even had a pause, two indoor cats positive for heartworm. So mosquitoes mm -hmm. are here. Our coyote population is a reservoir. Um, so I do use an oral heartworm preventative. I don't use ivermectin because many of our dogs have what's called an MDR1 gene, and they're very sensitive to it. Uh, so I do do that as a preventative, but most of my clients don't use flea and tick products uh, just because we have such a lack of a problem here itself. And how do you incorporate acupuncture into your practice? How do you decide that it's necessary? And um, I'm, you know, it's always intriguing to think about 
how those uh, incredibly observant people figured out the meridians in people, but how they figure them out in animals? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, let me tell you a little, a, sl a slight sidebar. Uh -huh. um, when I started looking at um, integrative medicine, I wanted mm -hmm. to add Chinese herbs to my practice. So I signed up for a course in in um, Albuquerque uh, through a human uh, company because there wasn't any veterinary products at mm -hmm. that point or or uses for uh, Chinese medicine, thinking that I could just go learn about Chinese herbs and put them in my practice. Then I found out I had to learn the paradigm of Chinese medicine, <laughs> which then obviously led to, well, since I know Chinese medicine, I've got to use acupuncture because mm -hmm. it's great. People have worked on these 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 meridians and these points for years, and there's a there's a group called the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society, and it's well established where mm -hmm. bladder twenty three is or mm -hmm. GV four, and so um, that's all been worked out really really well. I got certified in acupuncture in the early nineties, and I was wondering like how is a cat going to sit for this? But mm -hmm. we have a little trick. We stick a needle in uh, GV20 uh, on top of their head, which is the calming point. I usually will excuse myself for a few minutes, come back in, and I can get my needles placed in all the other areas. Oh, wow. And they wow. handle it beautifully. In fact, okay. we have cats that come in and just lay there. They know they're going to get their acupuncture <laughs> treatment. It's really pretty impressive. So um, it's been a great advent to our practice. Um, and, and obviously, this has been worked out pretty well, Victoria. Would you comment on rapamycin, which yeah. has been touted? I knew as, you were going to ask me that. Yeah, <laughs> as promoting longevity yeah. in dogs. Yes. So, um, you know, rapamycin affects the mTOR pathway. There's a lot of evidence um, on use in humans as far as low dose usage. Um, one of the things that I looked at was I talked to um, Matt Caberlin, who's in Washington. He's mm -hmm. now left Washington State Vet School. He's done so much work in this area. There's an actual cohort study in humans of 330 humans and assessing level of uh, cognitive ability, pain reaction. And in low-dose rapamycin, it showed that it improved all of those things. Um, you know, there's strong evidence in laboratory animals of increasing longevity uh, in mice and we're now looking at it in dogs. There's a lot, there have been a number of dog studies which really show uh, telomere length looks better. Um, the things that we look at as far as aging type markers. Um, so we're using it. And, and I know, um, you know, it's, it's to a limited, I, I'm not recommending it to my clients, but if they come and ask me, by all means, um, I think that there's a huge use for it. And I think it's going to be very exciting. One side note, company in Ireland just did a huge study in cats uh, and found that rapamycin will stop progression and actually help hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hmm. And that product oh. is FDA approved in 2024. It's coming out for HCM in cats, which is very exciting. I've also seen, Andy, it slow the progression of uh, hemangiosarcoma, transitional cell carcinoma in dogs. Uh, it doesn't do anything for osteosarcoma, which is a big disappointment because we need something for that. But I think it has a huge future. I'm very excited about it. So rapamycin would be a pharmacologic way of extending life. But earlier you mentioned that one of your goals is to help animals live their full lifespan. Could you give us, well, what, what do you review with pet owners, people who are really motivated to have their animals do as well as they possibly can? So I talk about the mnemonic pets. P is 
proper nutrition and microbiome. E is exercise. T is training. And S is stress reduction. And I go through all of those areas. Of course, my first conversation with owners is always diet and microbiome. Uh, we look at those things uh, tremendously. Um, exercise, it's been shown that a dog that exercises, rap, you know, rigorous ex exercise can live up to two and a half times longer than dogs that don't have that. And the same thing goes for cats. It just hasn't been looked at. Um, training and socialization is so huge. And, and we see so many animals that don't get a chance to have a job, especially a dog. The dog likes to have something to do. Training is amazing stimulation for their brain, you know, increasing oxytocin, decreasing cortisol levels. And then stress reduction is just the things we've been talking about. I look at all of these toxins that they could be exposed to. You know, in regular dog food, Victoria, the um, amount of Maillard reaction products can be 100 times what it is in humans. The amount of um, um, AGEs, um, advanced glycolation end products, 30 sometimes what it is in us. So if we can start eliminating some of those things, we're going to get animals that are going to feel better and obviously live longer. Um, and that that's kind of how I approach it through that pet's mnemonic. And it's worked very, very well. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to tackle a few common myths. And Andy, I'm going to I'm going to pick on you here for a okay. second because you <laughs> feed your animals something that most people say <laughs> is not okay to feed dogs. You want to talk about that for a second and uh -oh. we can respond? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're going to get me in trouble with Andy. <laughs> no, no, I think it's the reverse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always given my dogs a little bit of after dinner dark chocolate, okay. which they which they love, <laughs> and uh, you know it's a small piece, but they look forward to it right. and uh, they've been fine with it. My sense is that uh, there's an idiosyncratic reaction in some dogs to chocolate. It's not that yep. chocolate is toxic for dogs. It's for some dogs. Yeah. Yeah. It's the theobromine that really seems to cause the problem that we know of in chocolate. Um, and I do think, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's, you know, the old comment that everything in moderation is probably acceptable. Um, I won't relay to my clients that you do that so that I don't get you in trouble. <laughs> right. um, but because we, we have seen severe chocolate toxicity. Yes, I know. It, yeah. And but a lot of times it's huge amounts. You know, they've eaten, right. you know, they've eaten a whole Hershey, you know, large Hershey bar or something like that. So. So but Randy, I had, we previously had a uh, Corgi right. who got into a closet at Christmas and ate seven Drosty chocolate oranges. Right. And the only result was diarrhea for two days. Right. Good. <laughs> well, we, we escaped that one. That's a good one. You're, you're right. And I do think there is, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is an idiosyncratic reaction, but you know, obviously we don't know which dogs are going to be those dogs. So I, I try to just tell people not to do it, but in your situation, I would not say that. Okay. And I've also seen there are other things that I think are myths. Sure. One is that avocados are toxic for dogs. Not true. And I looked that up and you know what the basis of that is, is that the pits are too large. Yeah. I mean, who is going to give a dog a whole avocado? Right. Uh, avocados, that's ridiculous. Avocados are a great source of fat for our dogs. I, I totally love that. I mean, there's a diet, you know, based on avocados in, ah. for dogs. You know, so that that is a myth. That that's that's crazy. And the other myth, if I can, yes. you know, move ahead, is garlic. You know, uh -huh. you know, um, garlic, Allison, is not toxic for dogs. It's only toxic in in huge amounts. And giving a dog, a normal dog, 
you know, a clove of garlic ever so often is phenomenal for their immune system uh-huh. and, and anti-inflammatory natures. So that's a huge myth too. Uh, huh. Now, onions, by the way, are toxic. We see huge Heinz body anemia problems with onions. Huh. So I do stay away from those if I can. Okay. Other things that you were thinking of? Macadamia nuts? I don't know why there would be a problem with those. I've never seen it. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, The only thing I would think of is a smaller dog swallowing, you know, a couple of them whole and having some obstruction problem. Right. Um, There's a small number of studies that suggest that animals can experience the placebo effect. Uh, Are you familiar with that? And and what's your take on that? Well, I think that... um, (laughs) What I say basically is that's actually the human, the pet parent placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, really not the it's not the pet. I mean, yeah. you know, we can give something to a, a client and say this is going to do this and that, and I obviously think that we could see that placebo effect in that pet parent by just suggestion, um, especially with somebody that they trust and and whatnot. I don't think it's a pet placebo effect. I really think it's a it's a human mm-hmm. placebo effect. What do you think, Andy? I, I agree. I think it's the human pet interaction that produces that. Yeah. And, you know, our pets totally pick up what we're, what we're experiencing, yes. how we're feeling. I mean, hearing stories about some of my senior pet parents who God forbid, one of them is dying and mm-hmm. the dog never leaving or the cat never leaving that person's side. Yes. You can't tell me that they don't know what's going on. They totally experience that. And yeah. that energy level is is obviously very well known. Yes. What do you think of is the future of integrative veterinary medicine? And are the schools going to start incorporating some of that information? Well, hopefully I'll live long enough to see to see it happen. <laughs> I've been trying, Andy, as you know. Um, you know, here's an interesting thing. Our practice, I've been offering um to bring on a mentee or or an associate veterinarian just to learn what I know. You know. It took me years to put all of this together, just as it did you, I'm sure, in yeah. Victoria also. And, you know, it's not being taught. So if we can evaluate and, and establish a program at the U of A vet school, if we can start getting some younger people interested, I'm hoping through these types of things that we're going to attract some younger veterinarians that I can teach. Because, I mean, we've got to potentiate this. I mean, it's, it can't go away. It has to, it has to stay and it has to be prevalent and it has to be a big part of what we do. Look what's happened in in your world. I mean, you remember when you were a charlatan, basically, you know, I mean, no one would do half the things that you were doing and yet, you know, all of it's come to being and it's also borne out as far as something that it's efficacy. And so that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm I'm doing everything I can to make that happen, and I'm going to continue doing that. Well, we hope to work with you on that, and uh, I'm looking forward to our center actively collaborating with our School of Veterinary Medicine. Yeah, it would lend so much credence to, to what we're doing. That that that's what that's what's needed. Well, thank you so much, Randy, for your leadership in this world of integrative veterinary medicine. And I'll second Andy. I think it would be wonderful to be able to collaborate. And thank you so much for uh, teaching our listeners about a subject that I don't think is particularly well known. I'm I'm happy to do it. Um, Also, you know, I'm open to people emailing me questions or or things that they might have. Um, I know we'll have that uh, that some some of that information up to at some point. Um, but happy to do it. Love to come back sometime. Good. Thank you. Thanks, guys.